Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. This is Stephen Moray, president of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership, and I'm delighted to have with us today Susie Adams, chief technology officer for Microsoft's federal business. Thank you so much for uh, taking time to chat. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I saw that you were a graduate of George Mason. Are you from uh, Virginia, or did you move here from somewhere else? I actually, I wasn't born in Virginia, but I lived in Virginia since about fourth grade on. Uh, My dad was actually moved here uh, to work for IBM, so I lived in Manassas. I actually grew up in Manassas. Computer engineering was just, you know, that was the time when I went to college. It was just, you know, kind of a new major in school So for most people. So um, instead of going engineering route, I went computer science. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you making time to do this. And at what point do you think it became clear that cloud services, whole data center business were going to be a major growth opportunity for Microsoft? You know, it was kind of the evolution of, of computing from mainframes to client server, then to web. Then we went to uh, multi-tier systems. And then we kind of saw this switch. It was almost like the evolution of, okay, we're comfortable with web. What else can we do? And I think at that time, I know myself personally started to think, well, where, where's, where are we going to go? And I think from a Microsoft perspective, what we really did is, is, you know, as demand started growing for online services, whether they be commercial services or enterprise services, we continually explored new potential data center locations across the U.S. and, frankly, across the globe as part of our regular business operations. So as that, you know, kind of took off, and obviously commercial services took off first for the most part with, you know, things like you can go back to Hotmail and some of the you know, services, you know, where we didn't think about it as cloud, but they were, you know, kind of free services offered online to customers. And so I think that really it was just a kind of a natural evolution of where the IT world was going. That's cool. It actually reminds me a little bit. I don't know this story well, but I think if I'm not mistaken, AWS was largely born in a similar way, right? Where Amazon was kind of doing its own stuff. Uh, actually, and, I mean, we've, they're a little bit different than us in that they different. were kind of born in, yeah, they were more or less born in the cloud. And they're obviously, they have a much different business than we do. I mean, we're not an online retail store. I mean, they had a slightly different entree into it. We were already an enterprise software company where they were a retail, retailer. Yeah, and right. Yeah. So different, you know. Same challenge, but just a little slightly different way of entering it. One of the stories that we're telling in this issue is just this incredible story of the data center industry in Virginia as we've essentially become, I think it's fair to say, the data center capital of the world in terms of the level of investment and activity. And I'm I'm just curious, as you kind of think about it from where where you sit, why do you think that happened? And, And also with respect to Microsoft in particular, what do you think it was that made Virginia attractive to Microsoft? Obviously, we run a global business, and so when we go through the process of trying to determine you know, where is the most cost-effective to put a data center? We also kind of took a step back as we've gone through this evolution and said, you know, it's more than just cost. There's a, a lot of other factors we should really think about as we're doing this to be innovative, to make sure that we can be innovative for generations, not just for the next year. And so we actually take into account over 35 weighted criteria, including things like close proximity to customers, ample and reliable power sources, and that's not a single power source. It needs to be multiple power sources. We take into effect if they're, they're good for the environment, meaning uh, can are they solar, are they hydro, can we use mm-hmm. wind power, not just standard uh, electricity. Mm-hmm. We look to make sure that there's a large pool of skilled labor and, of course, you know, affordable energy rates. Because <laughs> right. as we know, if you've moved throughout the country, they're not as affordable in some locations than others, as well as internet hub connectivity. And so we have a team of people that do this and they look globally for 
are the best places to put data centers. And obviously, you know, everybody realizes Northern Virginia is one of those places. If you've ever been to Ashburn, Virginia, pretty evident. <laughs> just drive past the airport. I have a niece that lives out there and it's pretty funny. <laughs> just like, yep, drive past the 20 million data centers and then there's our house. When you think about Microsoft's data center in Southern Virginia, do you have any sense for why that location was attractive to the company as opposed to like, you know, data center alley, if you will? I wasn't involved in the in the selection criteria and I, and I don't have access to that type of data, but I will tell you, uh, when you go down, when you go down to Boynton, it's extremely impressive. There are two main power feeds there that are both very green friendly. There's a hydropower and a nuclear mm-hmm. power and the wow. Boynton town is actually very small. So the town population is, is, you know, around 400 and something people. And we actually created 300 new jobs just in Mecklenburg County. And I think that was as of January 2019. And so mm-hmm. it was kind of a unique opportunity for us. And obviously there's a lot of available land, but I can't, you know, other than that, our team looked at all 35 of all of the different pieces and I, and, and determined that that was a really good place to, to put a data center. Is it fair to say, broadly speaking, that maybe not all 35 criteria, but sort of the major factors that you guys looked at are similar to what many of the other big players are looking at as well? It's hard to tell, but I would guess there'd be some similarities for sure. Right? The way that we look at data centers, I do know, is a little bit unique. We look at them in terms of generations. So as we build a data center anywhere in the world, we learn from how that particular data center operates and we improve on that innovation and in the next generation. And so going toward the data centers, you can see that evolution. There are no raised floors. For example, we've actually won several awards for some of our data center work. The one in Boynton, if you go in, is literally, it's a concrete slab and there's a hot and a cold aisle and it has what it looks like as aircraft engines blowing air from the outside into the data center. And so the data center actually runs in the summer much hotter than a traditional data center. It's kind of like the swamp cooler effect where the hot air gets pushed up through the ceiling. So it's a very different way of looking at things. I've always thought of them as kind of being uh, kind of similar. But you're actually describing no, no, like they're, they're, they're all very the building itself. Really they don't cool. look the same. Some of our data centers, due to space locations, are four and five stories high. Some are two, some are modular. We actually put a data center at the bottom of the ocean to try to test that to see how that would work. Yeah, so there's, you know, a lot of different things that we're trying from an innovation perspective to really just see, you know, what works. How energy efficient can we get our data centers by the standard of PUE? And so we met our goal of 1.2 PUE, which one is basically zero power utilization effectiveness. I won't say it's an industry standard, but it is a way that most all the data center providers kind of look at how efficiently are you running your data center from a power perspective. When I think about Microsoft, you know, one of the things the company has done in the community in Southern Virginia is this TechSpark partnership and the construction of the Southern Virginia Innovation Hub. Do you, do you have some familiarity with that? TechSpark, just to give you a little background on it, is a national civic program. It's aimed at fostering greater economic opportunity through partnerships with rural and smaller uh, metropolitan communities, really for job creation, helping generate jobs in the computer field. It focuses on five different areas, digital transformation, digital skills and computer science education, career pathways, rural broadband, because obviously broadband and, and internet connectivity mm-hmm. can be challenging in some of these areas. And then support for nonprofits. How can, how can we get nonprofits really engaged in the process? So when we look at this, uh, and it's, it's actually not just geared to, you know, K through 12. It's actually, the concept here is really continuous learning. At the speed of innovation today, you know, myself included, 
I have to continually be learning new things. Innovation is changing at such a pace. It really is a continuous learning process to be to be employable in the computer industry today. And so really mm-hmm. we're looking at providing through a, a group of, it's about nine or 10 nonprofits that we're working with uh, right now in that area. And we haven't announced those nonprofits yet, but we will very soon in the future. But the idea really is to work with those nonprofits on programs. Our piece of this will be looking at the programs uh, developing those programs, building those partnerships in the facility itself. We're not actually building the facility. That mm-hmm. facility is being built by one of our partners there today. Sure. Yeah, there's so much enthusiasm about it. What do you see as the biggest outcomes you would anticipate? The goal is really to create these tech hubs. So they're, like, they're ecosystems to train students so that they can hopefully find jobs and we can give them opportunities where they don't have to move out of their local hometowns or to San Francisco or Seattle or, or for that matter, you know, even to Northern Virginia to create job opportunities for them. I mean, it's very tough for kids in rural areas to actually go home and contribute back to their community, especially if they're in the tech field. It's also tough for folks that live in rural areas whose industry might be changing because of technology to actually be employable. So how can we actually do both? How can we work with nonprofits and other organizations to train people in industry, but also make sure that industry flourishes in that particular geographic region? That's so great. That's actually one of our big goals is to attract more tech jobs to sort of rural and small metro areas. And while obviously they're not the big drivers nationally, there's kind of a meaningful number of companies that are creating jobs there, including you guys, obviously. Yeah, in Virginia, I think we have a total now um, of around 1,800 jobs we've created. What does Microsoft look for in its employees to run the data centers? Like what skills, what traits are most important? There's a variety of different staff, obviously from facility maintenance, security and IT staff, people experienced with networking and computer hardware. I mean, those are the obvious things that stand out to you. But what we're really looking for are people with strong work ethic, a willingness to uh, collaborate and learn, right, uh, using that continuous learning kind of mantra. And those are really important traits that we look for in the people that we employ at our data centers today. What do you think states can do, and I guess to some extent uh, educational institutions, to train the workforce for the sort of data center, big data-related jobs of the future. And I guess related to that, I'm curious if you're aware of what we're doing now with our big investment in computer science education through the Tech Town Investment Program. You know, so right now there are four colleges involved is what I understand. We're not sponsoring it as of yet, but that may change. But as far as training around jobs and future and partnerships with education, we started doing a lot of continual programs that start in elementary schools mm-hmm. and continue mm-hmm. along the pipeline to you know middle school and high school. We have a Girls Who Code Club, for example, and they do different activities in coding. And we've supported that for a number of years now. And that same opportunity funnels into high school. We've also co-joined the project with the Southern Virginia Community College for an IT academy for students above the age of 18. So they can enroll and get new skills throughout high school and beyond work in the IT sector as well. What are some of the other fields that you sort of see as key pipelines to work for a company like Microsoft in the cloud space? When you look at students coming out of college, obviously having a computer science background or something related to computers is good because it does help you in the field. But it doesn't necessarily mean you won't be hired by Microsoft in general. If we're just looking in the data center, you would probably need to be or have some skill set in computers. There's a wide variety of roles inside of Microsoft. Uh, where we hire people with all kinds of backgrounds. If we look at where the IT industry is going as a whole with cloud computing, most people are very comfortable now. You know, back in 2009, 2010, we started with just bringing, you know, simple dial tone to emails as a service and, and software as a service applications. And we've moved to, you know, from in IaaS. 
and just moving your existing workloads from on-premise into the cloud. Now we're really looking at, you know, taking that to the next step. How do we actually take the fact that it's pennies on the dollars to host basically limitless data in a cloud and apply artificial intelligence and machine learning to that data to do things and actually democratize the ability to do AI? The cloud is actually what's enabling this and then adding automation on top of that. And so if you look at the opportunities there, you know, if you had data scientists who could now simply go into a tool, choose from drop-down menus, machine learning algorithms that had already been really tested, you know, by other data scientists, you know, and not just engineers, that you could now democratize this. You could, you know, actually be giving the, some of the power to even citizen scientists or, you know, employees who don't have that data scientist background, because that is a particular profession that we don't have a lot of resources in right now. You know, I tell my nieces and nephews, if you want to get a great job in computers these days, go into cybersecurity or data science, <laughs> because that's where, where we really just don't have, we don't have the human capital that we need as a country to excel here. And when you start thinking about where this could go, right? Some of the really cool things that we're doing, you know, right now and just playing around with, there's a number of different things from using AI, you know, from translator services, but also doing things with something called inner eye where it's a healthcare example where that employees artificial intelligence and machine learning to improve the results of radiological images, right? So you go in, and you have an x-ray taken or an MRI or a CT scan, and, you know, a radiologist comes in and looks at that. It's solely based on humans, you know, reviewing that. Well, what if you could use artificial intelligence, right, through this inner eye in a vision, uh, artificial intelligence capability to assist that doctor? Not replace that doctor, but assist it and actually augment their capacity and human capability to help them potentially see things that might not be visible even or easily visible wow. to the human eye. So you start to look at, you know, the ability to do these things and actually augment how humans can do their daily jobs through automation and a combination of AI and big science, you know, in cybersecurity. The big you know thing I think here is being able to look at all the telemetry that's coming from all the systems, not just the network, not just what's out there in NetFlow data, but actually take this data and all the telemetry you're getting from every device, your watches, your phones, everything is a computer these days, your refrigerator, right? and be able to start to see anomalies and trends that you normally wouldn't be able to see. And that's all because of big data analysis through machine learning and artificial intelligence. And so I think we'll see that will be the next big trend is kind of an uptick in those capabilities to help us better secure our data and also really use that technology for good and augment human capacity. And then I think the next obvious step is quantum computing. I'm not sure exactly how far away we are from that. We're working on quantum computing ourselves, but just imagine, you know, the computers before used to be ones and zeros. It had to be a one or a zero. Now with qubits, that state can exist at both states at once. And what this really means is you can do calculations in minutes or hours that would today take a lifetime in the universe to compute. When you start to think about things like curing cancer, and I tend to think about this for good, you know, good purposes here, but it really will. I mean, that, that is where we're headed, I think, as an IT industry, which is pretty exciting. And it's all been enabled by cloud and hyperscale compute. On quantum computing, is the limitation right now, to some extent, a hardware constraint? 
Actually, not necessarily. No, it's actually no. because you have to keep it super cold. Oh, it's like okay. a sci-fi movie. Uh, it's cryogenics. It's not like a coding thing. It's literally like a, no. like a physical problem. It's a, it's it's actually more of a physical problem. There yeah. are many things to work out, but that is one that is probably the number one problem right now. How do you keep well, it cold well, enough? Keeping it cool enough that it can run. You can't just go into that room and fix it. I can't say we've done this in a scientific way, but we do talk to lots of tech companies. And it does seem like computer science may be the biggest single, you know, talent pipeline into hardcore tech jobs. But data science is definitely kind of on its heels. It feels like maybe sort of absolute demand c- compared to computer science not as big, but it's growing much faster, perhaps. Does that, does that kind of resonate? Like, I know it does. Control- it takes a unique talent and desire to want to do that. Very similar to, you know, en- any engineering role. I mean, it's... I can even apply this to, you know, the way you think about processing sonar or radar. Really what they were doing was using MATLAB to create machine learning algorithms in math and then run them on computers that would take a week to generate a model to be then able to load onto a device that would be loaded onto a plane or ship. Now you'll be able to do this literally in minutes and train these models. And so the other interesting trend here is that now that we have this capability in the cloud, everybody wants this capability to extend to the edge as well. Mm. So it's great that we have it in the cloud, but the world is still disconnected. Now you have a machine learning model, it's sitting in the cloud. How do I take that model and put it on a device on the edge so we can look at data real time, think of a natural disaster or a fire with winds and they're gathering all this data and they want to know exactly where that fire is going to go. And they have all this data from other brush fires with the atmosphere and the temperature and the ground dryness, et cetera, right? Humidity factors. And they can easily plug this into the model and get a much better readout of where things are going to go. So I really think that what you'll see, the other thing before quantum is that some of these capabilities that we've enabled in the cloud Obviously, not the compute capacity because we're not going to shrink it and put it on a device, but we will be able to take what that model has looked like and, and has been processed on in the cloud and move it to the edge right? and be able to get the data from the edge to that model in the cloud so that it can be processed and do that securely and efficiently. Getting into data science as a sort of a big growth opportunity for Microsoft, interested in how you think about that. And then, and then secondly, maybe connected, maybe not, but the decision for the company to really make open source software a big focus as well. It's funny. When I joined Microsoft, everybody thought Microsoft hated open source. And and actually, we were already doing a lot in open source. It just didn't appear like that to folks. But if you look at kind of where we're going now, open source is really a critical part of of Microsoft's mission now in, in our whole entire mode of operation. From all our cloud services to even our box products that we still sell, to devices, to the software that we're working, our engineering teams use it. It's all throughout our data centers and not just at the software layer, but at the hardware layer as well. In many instances, it's hugely beneficial. And the same is true really for big data and artificial intelligence. Now, to give you an example, you can take open source tools and workflows that you're already using for machine learning and data science and just transition them to the Azure cloud and take advantage of its capacity and scale using all the standard open source software projects that are out there today that people are already using. And so whether it's running on Linux, in fact, Linux is 40% of the VMs, or I think it might be 60% of the VMs now, and we can get you that exact number running it in our Azure cloud are actually running on Linux. There are four major work streams that we do with open source. We consume, contribute, create, 
and then we collaborate with others in the industry. And so it is really a pretty critical part of everything we do. And in fact, you know, we, we base a lot of things on Spark, on R, right, on the R mm-hmm. programming right. language, yeah. machine yeah. learning. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we didn't go and create our own language. You know, those days are pretty pretty much gone. And we are basing things, you know, on Docker. We support Docker images, Ruby, Python, Perl. Um, we really don't care. And we can get you a list of all because there's, you know, a number of different categories of open source projects. But we really do support pretty much everything that's out there today. And we also build on top of that and contribute back to the community. In fact, I think we're one of the leading contributors to Linux today. Microsoft engineers wow. are. And if you were to talk to Satya Nadella, our CEO, he would tell you that it's critical to our company. What do you think's next in, in big data? Is it basically this like massive increase in computing power from quantum computing, or is it something else? It's not quantum yet. I think what we're going to mm. see is right now it's kind of clunky. The way people are using it, you got to still piece together, you know, a number of different open source projects. Not, you know, it's very difficult to learn how to do. You have to have a very special background in data science to be able to do it. And I think what you'll see is that as the cloud tools evolve, and we've already launched many of them on our platform, you'll be able to go in there and almost anybody will be able to do it. It'll be so automated that you're going to democratize how you do these things. It will be much, much easier. Very similar like when Hadoop was the standard, right, which wasn't that long ago for big data. It was difficult. It was 10 open source or 12 open source projects. It took people months to get, you know, an Hadoop cluster stood up. We went to the cloud. They went through a wizard, configured some things, and it took 10 minutes. I think the same thing is going to happen with machine learning. And you're going to see the ability to actually build these machine learning algorithms very quickly and then take those algorithms and actually move them to the edge. And I, that's where the power is going to come is when mm-hmm. you can run data that you're collecting in a field, right, or in a remote location, and literally mm-hmm. run that data through that algorithm at the edge, and then send it into the larger sample that's actually hosted in the cloud. What about cloud computing? I mean, broadly speaking, what are some of the trends you think we can look forward to in the, you know, the next three to five years? Maybe that's too far to forecast. But It depends if you're talking about government or consumers. I think from a government perspective, I think you're going to see data moving to, cloud, to the cloud at an accelerated pace. And we're already starting to see some trends around that. It's not just infrastructure as a service anymore. There are large data stores with the NARA records management, for example. You have to get your data out of your data centers and get it into the cloud so it can be managed. You can you know, back it up, that it's much easier to manage. Then we'll start to see in situations where it's not appropriate to move the data, we'll see hybrid solutions coming to life here. Whereas before, Mm -hmm. right now, the two worlds, they're kind of hybrid, but not really hybrid. We're going to figure out how to do that. And network latency and egress charges, they'll be a thing of the past. There's always going to be data on-prem, and you're going to need to have this hybrid experience. And then I think from there, you know, as we start to see that move, you're going to start to see people not look at, I need to move to the cloud and migrate to the cloud. I need to digitally transform the way I'm doing business. And that's the next step. Go ask, you know, any large government organization, how many authoritative systems of record they have, and they come back with an enormous number, 650, <laughs> and they have no idea what some of this is used for. And that's just because it's you know, grown up over the years. We'll start to see AI-infused applications where we're actually adding additional capabilities, whether it's a bot to help you do your job or whether it's just simple automation tasks that'll be put on top of that. We'll see advances in cybersecurity, zero trust solutions, and cloud capabilities that will give people 
you know, they'll start to infuse that and be able to manage that hybrid environment much more efficiently. And then we'll start to see at the same time, big data and machine learning really coming front and center as, a, as something that agencies are going to want to focus on and appropriate dollars to. Thanks so much for your time. And thanks for everything you guys have done for the Commonwealth. Absolutely. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.